Okay, I think I'm going to go ahead and get us going. And I mentioned at the outset last week uh, during our first class that Ivan Illich had the practice of having a, a, a candle lit in his gatherings. And in a sense, it uh, represented the possibility of the guests that may show up. Um, so we didn't literally light a candle because I, for one, uh, I don't have one here. Uh, and I'm sure it violates fire code or something of, of the sort. Um, but, uh, as it turned out, we, we did have, um, the, the guests that might show up. And, um, I think Arago is disabled, but, um, uh, Madhu Prakash is joining us today. And, uh, she is a, a retired professor at the State University, a friend of Ivan Illich's and someone who's been really encouraging to me in the last, um, few months uh, as we've gotten to know each other. So welcome to you. We might also be joined by uh, a couple of others. So uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, I, as I was getting ready for today's class, I realized that this plan that I had where we might take up a book a week uh, was really uh, pretty <laughs> silly on my part because there's so much that I would want to talk about. Um, but we'll, we'll make our, our best go of it. And I'll start by wrapping up uh, this brief sketch that I was providing last week of uh, Ivan Illich's life. And I had divided it up into um, a handful of um, sort of distinct eras in, in his life. Uh, we talked about um, his time in New York uh, as a parish priest among Puerto Ricans, which then led to his appointment um, as vice director of the Catholic University in Puerto Rico. Um, his departure from there uh, to Mexico and Cuernavaca, uh, which, which is where, uh, his public career, uh, his career as a, what we might think of as a public intellectual begins to flourish. And, and this is rather arbitrary on my part, but I, I divided that, that phase, uh, connected with CDOC, the Center for International Documentation, Intercultural Documentation, uh, into two phases, um, 1961, basically the 60s, 1961 to 1960. Um, on the one hand, and then 1970 to 76 on the other. Um, and my reason for doing that uh, had mostly to do with the fact that um, it begins to publish, publish a lot of his very important books um, that come to public notice in that second phase beginning in 1970. Uh, he himself uh, has called it his pamphleteering phase, uh, thinking of these books, relatively small but far from pamphlets, as, as pamphlets sort of engagements in, in, in public debate. Um, de-schooling society, tools for conviviality, some of his best-known works come out of this period. And then in 76, uh, CDOC closes. And I think this is roughly where we left off last uh, time in, in providing this sketch. So uh, I will quickly kind of bring us um, from that point forward. This next phase of, of his career, uh, we might think of as a, as a period where he was essentially an itinerant scholar and uh, took up um, residents at various universities in Germany and in the United States principally, and, and perhaps chief among them at Penn State University, uh, where, where there remains today a cadre of friends and colleagues. Um, and so, uh, this, this period of, uh, itinerant scholarship was also marked by a sense in, in that, that the previous work on institutions, uh, the work that, that he became most famous for, um, somehow didn't go deep enough in its attempt to understand our situation in the modern world. And, and so initially, um, during this phase, Illich actually spent a great deal of time in um, India and Southeast Asia uh, in an attempt to immerse himself in a culture that's sufficiently different from the modern West to allow him the, the kind of critical vantage point uh, that he needed. Um, this, it, it, attempting even to go as far as to learn the languages of the area, um, this proved perhaps less successful or too ambitious at this point. And instead, there was another way of doing this, and that is by immersing himself, not necessarily in another place in the present, but in another time, uh, and that is in the, in the Middle Ages, and specifically uh, in the 12th century, um, which I, I think is probably, it's not um, too far of a stretch to say, it was a kind of alternative home, an intellectual home for Illich, um, one in which he was very comfortable. Uh, and, and one um, thinker in particular from the 12th century, Hugh of St. Victor, um, a Catholic monk of the period, becomes an especially important conversation partner. Uh, Illich refers to him as a friend, uh, and I, I think he means that quite literally. Um, and so by immersing himself in this uh, alternative time period, uh, considering, of course, that, that Illich was a historian by training, um, I think this is an effort to gain 
an even better perspective uh, on the disorders of the present, the present society of modern society. Um, so with that said, out of this period um, come a, a variety of different uh, works, shadow work, gender, uh, interesting little book called H2, H2O and the Waters of Forgetfulness. And then a couple of later books uh, that take up the question of media technologies, especially the question of literacy. Uh, one of these is co-written with Barry Sanders and is called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind. Uh, and then the the later of these in the Vineyard of the Text is the book that I mentioned last week as being sort of my own gateway into Illich's work. And it's a beautiful reflection on Hugh of St. Victor, the guide to reading that he wrote in the 12th century, uh, and a close study of that text as a way of understanding the kind of uh, transition that he believed was happening in, in the 12th century, because that transition, if we understood it, a transition um, that, that he thought of as, as one based in a new kind of literacy, a new kind of approach to the word, if we understood that transition, we might be better positioned to understand the transition that we were going through as he came to see it uh, in the late 90s and early early 2000s, uh, what we might sort of think of as a, as a transition into uh, the age of computers or into digital society. Um, Illich talked about it in terms of uh, a transition from the age of tools as instruments of instrumentality uh, to the age of systems. Uh, and so his attempt to understand the present was grounded in these earlier um, earlier transitions that, that he was a close student of. And I wanted to uh, read just a, a brief paragraph that illustrates this, this method and I'll share the screen so you can read it with me. Um, this is Illich himself in an interview with David Cayley. He says, I tried to get people to understand how immensely distant is the mental world in which the 12th century authors moved. I did this in order to pull the students away from their typewriters. You can tell that this is already a, a different age, right? Uh, we might say today away from their phones. I don't know. Uh, away from their typewriters and their felt tip pens and the telephone, which they have to grab to give them the sense of a trip between two space times. And then I tried to keep them there for a while, making them aware what strangers they are and how little they can use their own concepts, their own German or English or French words to translate these Latin texts. I prepared them to re-enter the modern world with a crucial question about it and at the time of re-entry to become aware for a moment what a different universe they are entering when they resume the certainties of the world in which they feel at home. Uh, this is a, a, a wonderful paragraph um, because I think this, this is a method that can, in fact, yield so much fruit. Uh, you know, it, it, I think in some respects, we, we have a great uh, deal of trouble seeing our age for what it is. Uh, it's sort of the, the old line um, that David Foster Wallace has become so well known for, right, about the, the two fish in the water and, and they're swimming by and another fish comes by and says, you know, how's the water, boys? And then one of the first two fishes turns to the other and says, you know, what the hell is water? Uh, because it is so close to us, right, that we can't even see it or become aware of it. And this is the way that our own cultural milieu is. And so we need, on the one hand, to, to be dropped in, in in another culture and then all of a sudden we become aware about how, um, in a sense, artificial or socially constructed are some of the things that we sort of just take for granted. But one other way of doing that is to enter another era. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, has, has much the same to say about what he calls old books, the valuable books. It's not that they're uh, especially good because they're old. It's, because, it's precisely because they immerse us in another age so that we might better see our own age. He says, you know, books of the future would be just as good, but we don't have access to those. Uh, and so here, this is, um, I think, a good window into Illich's method and why the 12th century became so important for him. And I thought that that was worth, worth sharing. Um, following this, the last um, thing I want to mention is a book that Illich did not write, uh, but that David Cayley, who here um, is the interviewer from which uh, this passage comes from, um, David Cayley essentially transcribed. Uh, and we'll talk more about it in depth. It's a, it's a book called Rivers North of the Future. But what I want to mention uh, about it right now is that, in a sense, in that book, what becomes apparent uh, for the first time, well, no, not for the first time, and this is the point, but what becomes apparent again is the theological frame of reference that animated Illich's work. And the reason I, I say it became apparent um, again is that one may be forgiven if, if one takes up 
tools for conviviality or uh, de-schooling society uh, or energy and equity, these books from the 70s and early 80s, um, one might be forgiven for, for missing the theological orientation or roots of religious thinking. Um, and if in Celebration of Awareness, which is this collection of essays that uh, I'll talk a little bit about today, written um, in 19, was, uh, how shall I say, put together in 1970, the essays uh, stem from the mid-50s on through the 60s, that voice is still present there. Uh, that theological voice is still present. Um, but I won't say that it's submerged, but it's certainly uh, put behind the scenes, as it were. Uh, but in, in reading Rivers North of the Future, uh, where Illich develops uh, this thesis that, about modernity, about the nature of modernity as a, a betrayal or a corruption of the ideals of Christianity in the West, of course, this is, uh, one begins to see how thoroughly theological his thinking had been all along and how it had informed um, even his critiques of schooling. So there's that last, um, that last work, uh, and I say that it was um, transcribed uh, essentially uh, by Cayley because Cayley wanted him to get this down in writing, uh, and Illich never quite was able to do so. And so um, Cayley sat with him uh, for a number of days, essentially hearing, recording uh, Illich's discussion about uh, this thesis and, and its many interlocking parts, which are all fascinating. Um, and that led uh, to this uh, book, Rivers North of the Future. But we'll end our class uh talking about that book in greater detail. Um, in the late 70s, so backtracking just slightly, in the late 70s, if I have my chronology correctly, um, a growth began to appear uh, on the side of Illich's face. And um, at, at the time and, and, and henceforth, uh, he decided not to have it treated medically. Uh, and so over the years, over from, you know, from the late 70s until his death in 2002, it continued to grow. Uh, um, we haven't yet talked about Illich's views of, of medicine and uh, medical nemesis or limits of medicine, which is one of his key texts, and we'll get to that. Um, at, at, at the moment, I'll simply say that he he chose not to treat it. Cayley discusses a couple of um, uh, the reasons behind this, a couple of the uh, incidents that might have informed his, his decision not to have this um, growth treated. And one of them, uh, two of them have this almost kind of uh, mystical aspect to them. Uh, one of them is a, um, a Muslim friend of his who uh, tells him that in some important way, this is a part of him. Um, I'm right now escaping. I should have written it down. But um, and he in, in his youth or when he was younger, an uncle on his mother's side had, had told him and almost prognosticated about something that would happen um, uh, I think even indicating the precise location on the body and, and that he must accept it. Uh, and then finally, Illich himself came to understand this in terms of um, in almost a Pauline way, right, as a, as a, uh, a cross that he's been called to bear and one he should not avoid bearing. Uh, and so he did it, even though it caused him a great deal of pain moving forward throughout his life, um, uh, toward his tail end of his life, especially, which he attempted to treat in a variety of ways. Um, and so Finally, in, in December of 2002, while he was in Bremen uh, at the home of a good friend of his, Barbara Duden, uh, Illich passed away. Uh, and so with that, um, this biographical sketch kind of comes to a close. Uh, and we'll we'll have occasion again to refer to these various periods in Illich's life, and especially as we sort of trace the development of his thought. Um, so... Let me uh, move on then, unless any of you have any questions here, since we kind of, that kind of closes this first section. Let me pause and ask you if you have any questions overlapping from last week or having to do with any of um, these details we've just gone over right now. Okay, so then let's um, press on then. So I want to focus then uh, essentially on on this, a couple of essays that are in celebration of awareness and one that is not, but that comes out of the same period. And so the, the focus um, during this first phase of, of, of CDOC's history uh, and really through the 60s it can be summed up as sort of Illich's opposition, summed up, but maybe not reduced to Illich's opposition to development. And, and I talked last week about how 
This was a big theme. It was a big theme of the Kennedy administration, of the first world, uh, seeking to bring its benefits uh, to bear, its technological economic benefits to bear on so-called underdeveloped countries, um, and uh, how Illich thought that this was misguided. The church itself participated in this, um, the Roman Catholic Church that is calling on the North American church to lend 10% of its, of its um, uh, clerical force to the Latin American world. Uh, and so Illich, in many ways, Istigap was a kind of headquarters uh, uh, of opposition to this movement. And I, one of the talks that comes out of this time period, which I want us to, to look at first here today, and I'm going to uh, share a couple of sections of it, um, it's, well, it's, called, it's come, become known as to hell with good intentions. And that line actually comes out of a, some comments that Illich makes before he delivers his prepared remarks on this occasion. Uh, so let me give you a little context for the talk. It's 1968. Um, Illich is invited to speak at the Conference on Inter-American Student Projects, Conference on Inter-American Student Projects. This was essentially a, a Catholic, a Catholic student-led organization uh, that gathered groups for what we might think of today as short-term summer mission trips uh, to Mexico through the 1960s. Uh, and it, uh, it seems to have begun, I think, in California, had branches in Canada throughout the United States, uh, and became very popular through the 60s. Um, so they were having an annual conference in Chicago in 1968. Uh, it's not clear to me, um, judging from Illich's remarks, it's not entirely clear to him, who thought it would be a good idea to have Illich be a keynote speaker at this conference, uh, because his, op- his opposition to what um, this organization represented um, or his critique of it was at this point relatively public and well known, but he came uh, and and he delivered this talk known as to hell with good intentions um, if i might might borrow a uh, contemporary um, uh, phrase for this the the talk is straight fire it, it is absolutely incredible. Um, I sent you a link to it if you take the time to read it and I encourage you to do so. Um, it, I am awkward just imagining the people sitting on stage listening to this talk um, being delivered to them. And um, let me let me begin then again by by sharing the screen. We'll, we'll take a look at some of these sections. Um, so this is um, oh, you know what I meant to share this with you. Let me go ahead and read this for you. This is um, from Kaylee's introduction to Rivers North of the Future. Uh, Ivan Illich tried to think and to live his Christian faith in the thick of modern institutions. He pursued his vocation into the real world of schools and hospitals and risk screening and cyber techs, and was often discreet about the source of his inspiration. This was his way of nakedly following Christ, as he liked to quote from St. Jerome. Of all the names he was given from philosopher to prophet, the one which sticks and by which he himself wished to be known, his friend. So this is a, a touching conclusion on Kaylee's part to um, his introduction of, uh, to Rivers North in the future. Um, and I often think of that line, naked, I follow the naked Christ, which was uh, a kind of motto for Illich. So here is how Illich begins. And these are his remarks. He has this, this prepared text. And before he gives the, the, the prepared comments, he sort of impromptu addresses his audience and, and he says this, I was, I was equally impressed. So he says, I, I'm impressed by um, your dedication, your devotion, the, the, the sort of fervency with which you're pursuing your goals and uh, the willingness to sort of think critically about what you're doing. And then he says, I was equally impressed by the hypocrisy of most of you, by the hypocrisy of the atmosphere prevailing here. I say this as a brother speaking to brothers and sisters. Your very insight, your very openness to evaluations of past programs make you hypocrites because you, or at least most of you, have decided to spend this next summer in Mexico, and therefore you are unwilling to go far enough in your reappraisal of your program. And this is before he even sort of gets warmed up. Now, the striking thing about this, and and I want to mention this at this point, is is the the challenge of reading Illich, uh, for, for those of us that take it up, is that you realize very soon that, that he's not simply asking you to change your mind about something. He's asking you to change your life, right? That there is a, a not only an intellectual challenge, but a moral challenge. Uh, and, and that is, it, and it's a real challenge. Um, there are no half measures. 
Uh, and I think this is what makes his work so compelling. Um, and, and so here it is, right? You see this immediately in these comments, um, as if he is saying, if, if you take seriously what I have to say, it's not just that you can sort of nod in approval and then go on and do what you were going to do anyway, but it's that you must change your life. Um, so he says a little further on here, he says, to hell with good intentions. This is where the title ends up coming from. And, and he says, this is a theological statement. You will not help anybody by your good intentions. There's an Irish saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This sums up the same theological insight. And so again, he's, he's speaking to a group of, of young Catholics gathered excitedly uh, with all of the sort of um, perhaps naivete of youth to go make their mark in the world, to go help people. Um, and, and Illich calls them to, to question what it is that they're doing. Here's another section once he gets into the talk. He says, I did not come here to argue. I'm here to tell you, if possible, to convince you, hopefully to stop you from pretentiously imposing yourselves on Mexicans. I do have deep faith in the enormous goodwill of the U.S. volunteer. However, this good faith can usually be explained only by an abysmal lack of intuitive delicacy. By definition, you cannot help being ultimately vacationing salesmen for the middle-class American way of life, since that is really the only life you know. A group like this could not have developed unless mood in the United States had supported it. The belief that any true American must share God's blessings with his poorer fellow men. The idea that every American has something to give and at all times may, can, and should give it explains why it occurred to students that they could help Mexican peasants, quote unquote, develop by spending a few months in their villages. Now, I want to biographically confess here that I, I read this as someone who in my younger days, uh, in my early 20s, uh, actually led a group very much like this, or was one of the leaders of a group very much like this. Um, in fact, we landed in Cuernavaca, and little did I know at that time uh, the significance of that. Uh, and, and we went on and, and we did a, a medical missions. Uh, I think <laughs> now that I come to think of it, I, in, in many respects, uh, Illich might have been um, doubly um, irritated. Um, but he he then goes on and he says, because this is, I, I want us to hear this as Americans, most of us, right? I think all of us here, uh, and, and all of us probably securely middle middle class people. And so he says, you, like the values you carry, are the products of an American society of achievers and consumers with its two-party system, its universal schooling, and its family car affluence. You are ultimately, consciously or unconsciously, salesmen for a delusive ballet in the ideas of democracy, equal opportunity, and free enterprise among people who haven't the possibility of profiting from these. So... That, in my view, is pretty serious stuff um, and in, invites us, invites the listeners then, as it does invite us, uh, to ask what exactly we are doing in cases like this. Now, you, you, even in this paragraph, you, know, you see um, the, this threefold concern here, right? The, the two, this political concern of the two-party system, Illich's concern with schooling as, as one of the chief exemplars of the way in which the developed, so-called developed world imposes itself uh, deforms itself and then imposes that deformation um, on um, other countries and, and cultures. Uh, and then finally, that, that reference to family car affluence. Uh, it will have a lot to say about transportation and energy and equity um, in the sense that what, what in fact is happening under this pretense of helping and, and contributing and raising people up out of their poverty is that we are in fact imposing a way of life, a way of life which is itself to the people who are who embrace it, deforming and deforming even of um, of the environment uh, and of alternative modes of being in the world, and then this is in fact what we're doing. We're imposing this on on cultures that have, if I may put it this way, an integrity of their own that I think Illich wanted to protect and that that he thought should be valued for its own sake. So this is very early on in the talk. A little further on, he says, uh, you, you start on your task without any training. Even the Peace Corps, which uh, was no friend of the Peace Corps, but even the Peace Corps spends around 10000 on each Corps member to help him adapt to his new environment and to guard him against culture shock. 
How odd that nobody ever thought about spending money to educate poor Mexicans in order to prevent them from the culture shock of meeting you. Um, and then the close. Um, after we read these two, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, and certainly if you read it, but even if, if you haven't, just based on these paragraphs. Um, this is how Illich closes his talk. He says, I'm here to suggest that you voluntarily renounce exercising the power which being an American gives you. I'm here to entreat you to freely, consciously, and humbly give up the legal right you have to impose your benevolence on Mexico. I'm here to challenge you to recognize your inability, your powerlessness, and your incapacity to do the good which you intend to do. I'm here to entreat you to use your money, your status, and your education to travel in Latin America, come to look, come to climb our mountains to enjoy our flowers, come to study, but do not come to help. Um, and I, I imagine one could hear a pin drop, as we say, at that point. Um, so, yeah, let me bring us back together here. And um, so what are your what are your impressions of this? What how does this strike you? David, I see you laughing. <laughs> if you want to share your the, the sources of that, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, now I'm laughing because I'm I'm feeling the frustrations he feels and it's kind of relieving to hear that because these are things I, I've wondered about, but not really mustered um the courage to really talk about it with someone. Um, like I never did a short-term missions trip, um, but I've wondered for a while about how we impose ourselves on others. And I've been annoyed at how the, um, the idea of the, the white church, not as in, I don't mean that there are white people in the church, but I mean that, um, mm -hmm. the right church is the white church. Um, so, for example, I'm dating someone who's from China right now, and when she thinks of Christianity, she thinks of English. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, no, you should, like, yeah. it's for China, too. You should be able to do this in Chinese. Um, and so it's it's very interesting. And I have heard that um, short distance trips there end up not being that helpful because we kind of just show up, do something, and then leave. And so it was helpful for a little bit, and now it's not helpful anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I'm laughing. Why I'm laughing yeah. at it. Yeah. Any other thoughts on on, on Illich's critique there? Yeah, it's just it's a little off. But just thinking of your class, we were talking about place and like being rooted somewhere mm -hmm. from last semester. Just, I mean, I haven't read any Elish, but uh, that must be part of the idea here, where it's like, if you don't know the place and you're not rooted somewhere, you don't really have relationships with the people there, like, how much good can you actually do? Yeah. Yeah, in, in a little bit here, there's another essay um, that I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. about the It's called The Eloquence of Silence. Um, and, and it, I think, touches on this idea, you know, of, of what can we do when we do not know the place, when we do not know the people, uh, when we are um, dropping in and, and then going away. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, good, good point, Michael. I was wondering if Illich uh, had to learn Powerful. this lesson the hard way that he had uh, made some mission trips and and tried to be helpful and then decided that at some point the best I can do is to be a friend. I can come to study, but my um, main goal should not be to help. I thought I jotted in the margins that I didn't think that this educational difference should preclude uh, some form of fellowship at some level, even a friendship could be possible, but the, the helpfulness, maybe not so much. Mike, does, um, does Illich talk about these things at some point in terms of um, a sort of a framework of justice? 
Because it, it occurs to me that in our current situation, whether we're thinking about, you know, groups within our own country or groups where we cross borders, um, the language would be a language of justice that, that it's not right or just that Mexicans not have what Americans have. And therefore you are going to seek justice from, for Mexicans. There, there is this irony in the talk of justice that the, the one group that, that is maybe genuinely wanting to seek justice becomes the standard of reference, the point of reference for, for what is understood to be justice. And in very narrow terms, I think this image of friendship is a, is a very compelling image as an alternative to feeling like we've got to go help people. Yeah. So the, if I, uh, I'll, I'll comment on what I, where I think you're, you're going with this or what I understood, Richard, tell me if I don't quite address the question, but, um, can you all hear me okay, by the way, because I did, uh, my internet cut out for a moment. Am I good here? Okay. It's, good. Thank you. A little sketchy. Okay. Um, the, the idea, right, that the person who, who believes to, that, that they are engaging in, in, in works of charity or are motivated by a sense of justice, um, the danger is that they are simply imposing, uh, their own way of understanding the world, their own way of, of understanding what is good. Uh, their own particular configuration of um, what a just society entails on another group, right? On another uh, culture. And, and that is, you know, I think definitely part of the problem uh, in Illich's view. In Illich's view also, it's that what is being imposed is essentially industrial society um, in the 1960s and 70s, um, industrial society with, its own set of problems that Illich already sort of identified as, as ultimately being, being fatal or at least catastrophic for, uh, for political communities, uh, for the integrity of individual cultures, uh, for the environment, uh, for the non, non-human, um, members of the larger world that we share. And so there is, there's an attempt to preserve a way of life that in Illich's view, was was convivial, or it was was more, we might say today, uh, or I'd be tempted to use a language more conducive to human flourishing. Uh, and and this, in one regard, had to do, you know had to do with resisting the temptation to see, to accept the needs that others impose upon us. For example, right. So, um, consumer society flourishes to the degree that it makes us needy of its products, right. Um, it, you know, I've, I've observed, for instance, that, you know, if, if one of us, all of us, many of us decided tomorrow that we're sort of basically content with what we have, right? That, uh, that the needs imposed on us by, um, you know, the, uh, the advertising interest, industry, if we were sort of refused them, um, in many ways, our sort of economy, the way it's orchestrated now, the way it's organized now, we kind of grind, grind to a halt, right? And so we, we have insatiable, needs that are generated within us, um, the needs that only service providers can satisfy or only industry can satisfy. Uh, and, and this, what this is dissolved, uh, part of what this is dissolved in Ilja's view are, are human bonds, right? The way that we might have turned to one another to meet more fundamental needs. Um, and so that's part of the danger as well, uh, here. So, so it's not just a matter of, isolating cultures from one another. And, and, and I, I should say here that, that Illich wasn't opposed to mission work. Uh, there are other places in, in which he talks, you know, about the kind of mission work that can be valuable and, and, and recognizes that mission work is, is central to the church, which, which, whose central function, uh, is the propagation of the gospel, right? In his view, uh, the, the proclamation of the mysteries. Uh, and so it's, it's the particular mode of mission work, and it's the way that it's been uh, assimilated to Western industrialized culture, and how the two now are kind of packaged to go hand in hand. And, and in the same way in which David, you know, just suggested a moment ago, someone thinks of Christianity, they simply think English, or they think Christianity, they think American, worse yet, right? Um, 
And so let me, um, I'll mention this and then I want to move us a little bit forward because I want to juxtapose this essay with, with the next one. Um, but I, I have to say that I, I was looking up and trying to kind of create, recreate a context for this, understand the context for this. I did look up, um, the, this conference of inter-American student projects and I discovered that there was a, um, a website that's still online. Uh, it was, uh, the last thing I can see there was created in 2002. Uh, so it has this very sort of late nineties internet vibe. So it's kind of interesting for that reason. Um, and, and it's basically a collection of memories that invites people who were part of that movement through the sixties to kind of share their memories. It announces a reunion that's going to be happening in 2004, but, but to their credit, I, it, they mention Illich and this talk as one of the things that they highlight about the life of, of this organization. Um, the, the little note says Ivan Illich was an important person in the history of, of CS or uh, CIASP, the, the name, the um, acronym for the organization. It says he died this year, hence I can date it to 2002 after a long battle of cancer. Uh, there are online versions of his famous lecture, famous lecture at uh, CS in Chicago. Uh, one version is available by clicking here. And then this note at the time, Illich was persuasive, but was he right? And then the invitation uh, to, to answer the question, any thoughts? I'm not sure what thoughts came in from that, but um, but that note is there uh, on, the, on the website. I wanted to transition from, from, from that essay. And again, as, as a way of showing Illich's concerns with the imposition of, of Western industrialized society upon, alternative, upon different cultures um, and what that entailed and where that opposition came from in his work, um, to a second essay, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, or actually, no, here, the first one I want to read is actually, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's the lead essay in this collection. It's called A Call to Celebration. And again, I want us to look at just a couple of um, sentences from that, uh, because the tone is different. And so I, I, you know, if one only takes up uh, to hell with good intentions, one might be left with a certain impression uh, a village, but, but there's um, a fuller picture, I think, for us to paint. Um, so here is one of the things that he writes. So I, I want to, again, stress, it's not merely a matter of being critical, right? It's not near, near, merely saying these things are bad, but there is a good to which we ought to be uh, devoted, right, that we ought to pursue. Uh, there is not just the, the, the critique of modern institutions. There is the attempt to formulate an alternative. And so here... In a call to celebration, which says this, all of us are crippled. Um, today we might put it, all of us are broken. Um, some physically, some mentally, some emotionally. We must therefore strive cooperatively to create the new world. There is no time left for destruction, for hatred, for anger. We must build in hope and joy and celebration. Let us meet the new era of abundance with self-chosen work and freedom to follow the drum of one's own heart. Let us recognize that a striving for self-realization, for poetry and play, is basic to man once he needs his needs for food, clothing, and shelter have been met. That we will choose those areas of activity which will contribute to our own development and will be meaningful to our society. And I think part of what you see here is the sense, and I, and I will say, by the way, that, that Illich later on and, and, uh, others that were associated with him at the time, you know, in, in my own conversations with, with Gustavo Esteva, I remember him very clearly making this point. There was a mood. There was, a, there was a sense in the air at this time. This is the late sixties, early seventies. Um, there was a, there was a sense that things could change, right? That radical change was possible. Uh, and, and there is a sense in which that is followed by disillusion. So you do have this kind of energy here represented, right? The sense that, that we are at, at a critical juncture and things could be radically different than there are, uh, than they are presently. But, but what is animating the here, right? Is this, um, I, I want to highlight this idea of the self-chosen work and freedom to follow the drum of one's own heart. Um, this sense that this, this faith that Illich had in a sense in, in the individual to when, when he is or when she is free from a striving for food, clothing, and shelter, right? When these needs are met to become uh, a source of creative energy, right? Of celebration, of joy, if they have the freedom to pursue 
what they want to pursue, uh, the things that they, they are interested in. Um, this is part of his critique of, of schooling and modern institutions, uh, is that it, it contradicts this. Instead of, of freeing this, this capacity, it squashes it. Right? But we hear that here in this, in this paragraph. Um, this striving for self-realization, right? The sense that the, the human is made for something more than mere toil for survival. And, and the sense also that, that we could, so Illich is not a Luddite, right? His point is not that new technologies are bad. His, his point is that the particular configuration of industrial age technologies and institutions are bad, uh, in part because they don't deliver on their promise, uh, and, and do worse than, than that. But there is, there's a possibility that we have the capacity, right? If we chose to implement it in that way, to feed all that need feeding, right? To clothe all that need cl- being clothed, to shelter all those who need shelter as a society, as a, as a, a world of societies. Um, but that we weren't, we weren't making that choice, right? We were making a very different choice, but that if we did, right, the, this capacity for human flourishing would be unleashed. And this is, again, in, in the call to celebration from 1970. This is actually a backtrack in the essay, which is only like three pages long, backtracking to the very beginning. He begins with, with this. I and many others, known and unknown to me, call upon you, one, to celebrate our joint power to provide all human beings with the food, clothing, and shelter they need to delight in living. Uh, not just to survive, but to delight in living. And then to discover together with us what we must do to use mankind's power to create the humanity, the dignity, and the joyfulness of each one of us, right? And then finally, to be responsibly aware of your personal ability to express your true feelings and to gather us together in their expression. This, again, just kind of reiterates the, the point I just made, right, that there is a sense of what we could do but what we are choosing not to do and how it centers on the ability of the individual to flourish as the, as a sort of creature that they are, that they have been made to be. Um, that last line, by the way, that, that, that last um, possibility, right? To be aware of your personal ability to express your true feelings and to gather us together in their expression. The, 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 the pronouns were striking to me for some reason as I read that, right? You, it, 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 that, that plural pronoun us to gather us that you can gather us and there's something always always deeply personal uh in in Illich's understanding of the human being um of the individual the sanctity of the individual and and of the sanctity of the face-to-face encounter uh which which in one important way we ourselves right now are not having for example um but that the individual if they are responsibly aware of this ability to, to express themselves in their expressing of themselves, they can gather others around them, right? There's something very warm and inviting and humane about that, that you in being who you are have this capacity to gather others joyfully around your own expression of yourself, that each of us have this capacity, right? So there's a source of community in this as well. And so these are, these are beautiful lines, right? These are, um, this is in many respects, I think that the, the heart of village comes through here, right? He's not just the guy who stands up and tells a bunch of young, you know, would-be missionary kids, you know, to hell with good intentions. He has a very positive vision um, for what human flourishing can be. And I think a lot of his, the animus of his critique comes from the realization of the tragedy uh, of these, of this vision not being realized, uh, when, when it might be within our grasp to, to, to realize it. Um, and then let me do this. Let me bring us back together again, uh, on screen as it were for a moment. Um, and ask if there are any, any questions before I move on to this last little bit here that I want to talk about today. Any thoughts or comments on any of that? This last essay then, um, that I want to highlight a couple of portions of, and uh, I'll, I'll ask you to listen attentively as it were, I don't have the, the quotes pulled for us, but it's called The Eloquence of Silence, and it's from uh, uh, a kind of meditation that Illich gives before a language class. So Illich, Sidoc, and in, in, in Puerto Rico, uh, much of what he did to train those who were, he was training uh, was not just to sort of disabuse them of certain notions, but to give them language training. But again, a deeply personal and humane understanding of what language training could be 
Um, and so ahead of one of these uh, sessions in, in what amounts to a kind of language class, um, Spanish for English speakers, Illich gives us this brief meditation. I'm going to read you a couple of lines from it. He says that the science of linguistics has brought into view new horizons in the understanding of human communication. An objective study of the ways in which meanings are transmitted has shown that much more is relayed from one man to another through and in silence than in words. He's saying that if we think that only words communicate, Lilith here is trying to get these students to understand that silence also communicates. Words and sentences are composed of silences more meaningful than sounds. The pregnant pauses between sounds and utterances become luminous points in an incredible void. Then he's going to take a theological turn here. Um, He goes on, he says, it is thus not so much the other man's words as his silences, which we have to learn in order to understand him. Right. So if you if you think as, as as a would-be missionary, the most important thing is simply that you learn this language in order to communicate, you might be missing the most important part, which is that you, you learn not only to hear the words, but to understand the silences. The learning of a language is more the learning of its silences that it than its sounds. Now I, up right if I just stop there, you know, I think that in itself is sort of profound and worthy of our reflection and our understanding. Um but but he, he takes us deeper than that. Right? He goes on, he says, to learn a language in a human and mature way, therefore, is to accept responsibility for its silences and for its sounds. The gift a people gives us in teaching us their language is more a gift of the rhythm, the mode, and the subtleties of its system of silences than of its system of sounds. It is an intimate gift for which we are accountable to the people who have entrusted us with their tongue. A language of which I know only the words and not the pauses is a continuous offense. And so part of what Illich is going to push here is, is actually for the, the art of what we might think of as the art of listening, right? Of not simply wanting to speak, of being ready to speak and capable of speaking, but of being sufficiently attentive to the other that in silence, we can hear them. We can listen to them. We can even hear the, the, the meaning of their, of their silences. He goes on. He says, as words must be learned by listening and by painful attempts at imitation of a native speaker, so silences must be acquired through a delicate openness to them. And again, this is very much of a piece with the whole thing about, you know, don't just come here to do good, right? Do-gooders, Illich, you know, call that, that bunch, right? Because what you're, you're not even listening right? You're not hearing, you're not being attentive to the needs. You're assuming what the needs are. You're assuming that they're the same as yours. And you're assuming that your answers and your solutions, even if they're wrecking your own society, are going to be the ones that this society needs. And and here he is saying just at the level of language learning, right, of interpersonal communication, it's, it's essentially the same attitude, same spirit. Be open, right? Be ready to listen. Be attentive to the silence, Silence has its pauses and hesitations, its rhythms and expressions and inflections, its durations and pitches and times to be and not to be. Now, just as with our words, there is, just as with our words, there is an analogy between our silence with men and with God. To learn the full meaning of one, we must practice and deepen the other. And so Illich here is going to draw out this, this, this sense in which Learning to be silent before our fellow man, fellow woman, is in some respects a spiritual practice, because it's a, it's a, it's also what is involved in learning to be silent before God. Then he talks about different kinds of silences: um, the silence of the pure listener, contrasted with the silence of indifference, the one who doesn't care. Um, and he then goes on. He says, "The greater the distance between." two worlds, the more this silence of interest is a sign of love. He says it is easy for Americans to listen to chit-chat about football, but it is a sign of love for a Midwesterner to listen to the Hialeah reports, right, the distinctively Latin American Southern Hemisphere uh, sport. Uh, the silence of the city priest on a bus listening to the report of the sickness of a goat is a gift, truly the fruit of a missionary form of long training and patience. 
And then he says, there is no greater distance than the distance between a man in prayer and God. Only when this distance dawns on consciousness can the grateful silence of patient readiness develop. This must have been the silence of the Virgin before the Ave, the, the, the Hail Mary, um, which enabled her to become the eternal model of openness to the word. Through her deep silence, the word could take flesh, right? And so that the, the analogy here, right, is to the, the readiness of, of Mary as the obedient and humble servant to hear the word of God, but also to then bear the word incarnate within her. Illich draws all of this together with this, with this understanding of what it means to be silent. Um, he goes on in this vein. I'll, I'm going to read you just the closing paragraph and then we'll pause for today. Um, he says, there is still another silence beyond words. He calls it the silence of the Pieta. Remember the, uh, the, uh, the statue of Mary bearing the pose of Mary bearing the body of Christ. It is not a silence of death, but the silence of the mystery of death. It is not the silence of active acceptance of the will of God out of which the, the fiat or the yes of Mary, yes, I will, or yes, I will obey is born, nor the silence of the acceptance of Gethsemane in which obedience has its roots. And he goes on, he says, it is the mysterious silence through which the Lord could descend into the silence of hell, the acceptance without frustration of a life useless and wasted on Judas, a silence of freely willed powerlessness through which the world was saved. Born to redeem the world, Mary's son had died at the hands of his people, abandoned by his friends and betrayed by Judas, whom he loved but could not save. Silent contemplation of the culminating paradox of the incarnation, which was useless for the redemption of at least one personal friend. The opening of the soul to this ultimate silence of the Pieta is the culmination of the slow maturing of the three previous forms of silence. I don't know about you, but none of my language classes began or ended with reflections like that. Um, I wanted to give you a taste of that because, again, as we proceed into de-schooling and tools and, and these other works, there's a sense in which that voice gets muted. Uh, but it is always there and will, again, sort of resurface in that last um, interview with David Cayley, uh, Rivers North of the Future. And I think that's, this gives you a breath of the degree of human experience to which Illich could speak so eloquently and wisely um, and, and again, out of a, a deep theological understanding of the human person. Uh, so so you, you get a little bit of, of his fire, as it were, uh, but also its sources. And I think we need to keep those two um, in mind, especially as we move forward into the period where it's the fire that's going to become more, most evident. Um, any Any closing thoughts or comments? I really appreciated, I can't remember your exact words, but early on talked about how Illich doesn't want to convince us. He wants to change us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Right. Right. And I think that's the, the, the you know, I, I don't want to speak, uh, you know, certainly even from a who's here with us, but I think this is the power of, of his friendship, right? Of, of the presence in one's life that he represented. Um, at least this is a testimony that's been born to me of those who knew him, but it, it, you see it even in reading his work. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you again uh, for joining us and uh, we will reconvene next week and, and move on to um, de-schooling society. We'll talk a little bit about his views of education. Thank you so much and have a great week.